0: CBF. Uh, warm greetings to everyone in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so we've been continuing in our study on the series, the whole council of God, and we made tremendous uh, headway. We finished the Old Testament few weeks back, and I'm sure that, like me, most of you would be able to acknowledge that this has been a a very amazing journey so far. A lot of learnings that we've had, we've we've been able to see the the Word, the Scripture, in a completely different light, right? And as we saw the thread of God's plan running through the various incidents to the lives of different people, I'm sure we have enjoyed the ride through the New Testament uh, to the Old Testament, beg your pardon. And as we now come to the New Testament, we just kicked off with a couple of topics, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, I'm sure we're going to enjoy it all the more because, you know, what we have been seeing in glimpses, evidences in the Old Testament is now being just fully blown open as we come to the New Testament and you know as we find in the epistles where it's mentioned that you know, people in the Old Testament they saw these things with a veil over them right? you, know, you can imagine when you have a veil over you, you will not be able to see things that clearly you will see few glimpses, you will see few images, you will probably see something uh, you know, in a very inadequate sense but praise be to God that we who are the New Testament believers that veil has been lifted completely and we now see the whole of Scripture, for what it is, for 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 us to see what God really is intending towards us. So today's topic that we're going to look at is a very familiar topic. I'm pretty sure most of us, you know, uh, even by heart know this, right? I think even if asked to tell what are the Beatitudes, most of us will be at least able to cover 80% of it, right? And thank you, uh, Philip, for reading that for us and also praying. So let's all sit prayerfully. Uh, you know, I have to admit that I have been given a very raw deal f- to take on this topic because it's such a vast uh, theme by itself and each, every beatitude is a sermon in itself and I've been asked to condense and give a, you know, a, a crux of it in this next 40-45 minutes. Uh, so I pray to God that He allows me to do that, but if it gets slightly extended, do bear with me. Yeah. So. Uh, Yeah, so what we just read in chapter 5, what Philip read to us and what we see this beatitude is part of a larger sermon, part of a three-part, three-chapter sermon that we start seeing from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7. And and here what we just read, we have nine beatitudes. Beatitudes in themselves are a statement of blessings, right? And we'll see what exactly those blessings mean. Uh, And specifically these blessings that is being called out here, what Jesus talks about, it's in the context, it's in the specific context. It's not just earthly blessings, it's not blessings in how the world comes to understand it, but it's in the context of the uh, kingdom of God, and we'll see what that means. And importantly, you know, it's a you know it was a counter-cultural message of that times, so and we'll get some glimpses into it as we proceed further, but it was something that you know would would have caught the audience by surprise, the people who were hearing it. It was not common culture, it was not common practice to even think about these things let alone speaking about these things but uh, we have Jesus proclaiming these things which came out in so much power and so much might and what we when we look the entire sermon it's entirety you know it's not a ethical message it's not a social message right sometimes we just think of it and we read through it and we say it's a you know it's a good to it's a feel-good message Uh, blessed are the good pure in heart blessed are those who show mercy you know it's, it's like a uh, we try to tend to connect with charity at times, social causes, but it's not a social message. Here, when we come to the New Testament, it begins with a note of blessing. And when Jesus comes, He forms that bridge to that blessing. And it was a uh, you know, completely uh, amazing thing to hear because of 400 years we were seeing, right? 400 years there was silence and when God comes, when the word of God rings out, it rings out in a way completely never before seen, never before heard never even expected it. You know, it would, people would have, been, would have been were a great shock because they expected the Messiah to come with mighty words talking about how we will overcome everything, how we will overthrow everything, how we will you know, uh, set aside the chains of bondage and we will surge forward with new economic growth, you know, with, with you know, all political changes. But when Jesus comes onto the stage, when the word of God rings out in that land after 400 years, it was completely different. Right, so, uh, and when when Jesus starts the note with a statement of blessing, right, we, uh, Kevin, I suppose you'll help me with that. Right, so when Jesus talks about the blessings, you know, the blessings here, the context is in the, uh, it's not material blessings point of view, you know, it's not about having certain things which makes you blessed, but it's about inherently, right, what situation or what state of mind you are in. It refers to a state where you are, intrinsically content where inside deep down, irrespective of what you have you don't have whatever circumstances you are in you know you are still joyful you are still content and therefore being blessed and we'll see how you know what that source of the blessing is and so if you look at the people of that time for them you know the rulers of that land or from where they heard the word of the Lord or heard the scriptures the connotation of blessing was different you know we had the Pharisees who were a major group for them blessing came by following the law then we had the Sadducees, for them the blessing was an outcome of conformity, of conforming with the times of that land, right, cultural conformity, which is where Jesus comes in and changes that and makes it countercultural. Then we had a couple of other groups of people, the Essenes, the Zealots, for them the blessedness lay in revolution, it lay in being complete isolation, it, you know, be pursuing their own uh, desires. So in the midst of being influenced by these people, right, Jesus comes and says, Blessing is not what all these people talk about. It's not what in the concepts these people propagate. It's something much more. It's something, first of all, which has to come from within. And it is something which will not come by your efforts. It's something which I will make it possible, right? And we see that, you know, uh, even in the Old Testament, the word blessed is used to denote uh, who, you know, about God, right? We see in Psalms many places, in Psalms 68, 35, Psalms 70 to 18, in Psalms 119, that God, that blessed be God, God is blessed. God the Father, we find Him talk, being talked about. And then in the New Testament, First Timothy 1 and verse 11, we see Jesus Christ being attributed that. We see where it is the Gospel of our God, Jesus, or in other words, Gospel of Lord Jesus, was blessed. So it's a God's character which is now being attributed. Now you see the change, you know, all this while it was about uh, my efforts, my work, which should bring that blessing. But here now it's God, the character of God, which is now being, you know, imputed upon us by grace. So this entire message of the Beatitudes was you know, about insight, about the change which was to come from within. And that was what the entire Old Testament was leading towards. Right? We see um, you know, every time God intervened in the Old Testament, His inherent expectation was that people should change from inside, that they love Him from their heart, that they bring the change from outside. But unfortunately, it ended up being with external efforts, which is now being completely you know, ripped apart. And you say that it has to now come from, Within and for to enter the kingdom of God, if you need to have the characteristic of a person who is in the kingdom of God, you need to be truly blessed. Which means you need to have that change coming from inside. So, so the summation of this entire beatitudes is the fact that you know when we look at these beatitudes and when we apply this, this is what it means to be really saved. It is what it means to have salvation. It is what means to truly know God. This is something which the old testament believers aspired for but never able to attain but today given to us by grace and when we are truly blessed as it goes on it transforms transforms us into salt and light right and uh, we to this this entire segment chapter 5 and verse 112 it can be divided into can be divided into two. How we relate to God and what we get from Him when we enter into that covenant relationship with Him. And the second half of the Beatitudes, it talks about how we relate to others. right? So first half we have how we relate to God and it sort of reflects on how we relate to others and therefore the attitudes of the citizens of this kingdom. So we have the attributes of the citizens and for the first four Beatitudes and the second four Beatitudes, we have the attitudes of citizens and that's what we will look at over the next few minutes. So let's start looking at these, uh, yeah, the first attribute, right, and we find the first beatitude which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the the first attribute that a citizen in the new kingdom requires is, you know, realizing the spiritual poverty, and that's the starting point, Jesus starts with this point, because that is the, you know, the, the beginning of our journey into the kingdom to realize where we are to realize who we are and what is our identity what is our state is a state where we realize that we have nothing in us it's A state where we uh, you know where we realize that nothing that we can bring to him right for the jews at that time or the people listening for them you know they took immense pride in the rituals and the ceremonies that they followed you know in their self-righteousness but for them you know, when they heard this it was a strong a warning, a strong message and it's listed first because from this only the rest of the Beatitudes flow, from this only the rest of the instructions flow in and therefore the first step of the Kingdom is knowing that we cannot get there on our own Right? And that's what Jesus makes it emphatic when he says that you cannot get to this Kingdom by your own whatever you've been following, whatever you've been doing on your own, whatever you've been trying to achieve all of that is you know, absolute zilch, you cannot get to the Kingdom of God you know, unless you realise that truth first Right? It's not about self-sufficiency, it's not about your self-righteousness, but it's about God's sufficiency of being dependent on Him. So we will never be able to truly know God, see Him, unless we see our own worthlessness. That's the note He brings when He says that the blessed are the poor in spirit. And what poor in spirit indicates is uh, our inability, recognizing that we cannot do anything to be approved by God. Right? We cannot... Uh, that we are all spiritually bankrupt, deep down within, it's it's empty, it's void, right? All our sins, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, are our, uh, you know everything that we are. It's so worthless that we cannot you know come to Him or do anything. And that's how our condition is. Therefore, we need to acknowledge, understand, and then come to God. And that, therefore, from the first point, so realizing there's nothing that we can do to earn God's forgiveness or to get that salvation. And this is this is fact again, not entirely new. it, it was there spread again through the entire Old Testament, you know we have in Isaiah, uh, he talks about in chapter 66 and verse 2 so that God looks to man of contrite spirit. In Again in chapter 57 he says that, you know, it's, it's a promise that while I dwell on high, but I will one day dwell with the, those who are lower spirit, that's so therefore a promise that was laid out. In Psalms we have this, it says God looks to man of contrite spirit. He's seeking out those who are poor in spirit. He's seeking out those who are willing to acknowledge that they have nothing in them, that they cannot come to him with anything. And he's looking for them who have a broken heart. You know, in Psalms 15 says, a broken heart you will not despise. Right. So, moment a person realizes who or what he is, God is there ready to listen and to come make his dwelling with them. So that's the note when he says that blessed are the poor in spirit and what is the reward or what is the uh, you know the outcome that theirs is the kingdom of God. So it, what it says is that God's rule. When we enter the kingdom, when we when we have the desire to enter the kingdom, and we come to Him with our worthlessness, God extends His rule over us in our life, and on every each and every aspect He takes over. And therefore, that is what brings the blessings. You know, so now you see the change. All this while you were told that you know you you do this ritual, you follow this you know annual ritual, this festival, the sacrifices, you will get blessing. But now what God says is. Unless you come to me, unless you come to me with a broken, contrite spirit, you will not get blessing. You will not know what it means to be blessed. So therefore, you know, when you allow God to take that control in your life, you will get to experience that true blessing in your life. Right. We you know, we and uh, and we get that full change. And again, the promise here is you know, it's not something that is kept for the future. Now, for the old testament believers, it was something that they were looking forward to, right? There was something that they were all doing constantly. In the anticipation of something to come, but for us, it's it's both ways, right? We are doing certain things. We are today in this journey, anticipating a thing to come in the future. But still, you know, that kingdom, that experience of being in the kingdom, is there available even for us today? And it's not there for, for us a future event, even present, where we get to experience the joy, being in uh, of that kingdom of that heavenly millennial kingdom being right now in this time as well and today we are, as the scripture says, as the word says, that we are in efficiency, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenlies and that's the that's the outcome for those who come to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart and therefore that is the first beatitude and the first attribute being poor in spirit. From then from that attribute flows the next one, right? So when you, once you realize your spiritual bankruptcy, once you know that you are poor in spirit, what is the next step? What is the next attribute? That is mourning over our condition. Right. And when Jesus says "The blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this mourning here is a mourning which comes to the realization that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing in you with which you can come to God. Because what because of what? What is causing that worthlessness is the realization of that sin within, of that uh, you know, iniquity within. And that mourning comes from mourning over that iniquity over that sin which has kept you so far away from God. You know, realization that you are separate from God. Right, and it was so contrary to the world views, right? It's so so countercultural because when you look around the world, even that time, even now, you know, we see people constantly trying to avoid mourning, right? Everything in the crux, everything what people do today. What is the end objective? To not be in a situation where they have to mourn. Why do people run after money, after jobs, after you know material things? You know, of trying to achieve fame and uh, satisfaction. What is the end objective? To be, not be in a situation where they have to mourn or be sad, right? And then the world is trying to avoid it. Jesus says. It's something to embrace. Blessed are those who mourn. And this mourning, therefore, does not come from a, you know, a, an emotional outburst. It's not you are feeling sad or sorrowful or guilty about it. Uh, no, it's it's not stemming from that uh, uh, from that point of view, but it's a godly sorrow. And we'll read a couple of verses here. I'll request Sean if you can read Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse ten to thirteen. This this is what godly sorrow. This is what this is meant when it says that you need to mourn. We'll read that verses. That'll give us a bit more context. Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse ten to thirteen.
1: For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what Therefore, we are comforted and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all.
0: Thank you, Sean. So we see here Paul extending on this concept, right? He says, he talks about mourning and he ends it by saying that you will be comforted. So this mourning, this is not saying that if you mourn, if you're sad, if you're guilty about your sin, that will suffice or that will get you salvation or that will get you into the kingdom of God. No, that is just the start of the process where you have to mourn, where you have to acknowledge that there is something which today is keeping you separate from, from God, from entering into the kingdom of God. So, but when you start with that sorrow, when you have that godly sorrow, it produces what? It produces repentance, right? So, we have first stage, you realize your spiritual bankruptcy you realize that you have nothing in you, you realize that you are empty, and that produces second attitude, which is that you mourn about it, and that godly mourning, godly sorrow, produces repentance, right? And what is the, uh, and also if we read a little bit more about what this biblical mourning is, we can read that in James 4 and verse 8 and 9, again, Sean, I'll request you to read James 4 and verse 8 and 9.
1: Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn, And weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom.
0: Yeah, so this is what biblical mourning is, right? To draw near, you know, to draw near to God. It's not just sitting in one corner and sulking about it or just just feeling uh, guilt, but drawing near and that is what produces the results. And so what is the outcome for those who mourn? It says, for they shall be comforted. You know, Paul talked about it and Jesus in as much words say that those who mourn, they shall be comforted. So here is the good news of salvation coming in, right? It says, because he says that there is going to be an end to this spiritual emptiness. You are you have realized that you have nothing in you. You realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are mourning about it. Now, The good news is, you will be comforted. There is going to be an end to this spiritual emptiness. There is going to be a fulfillment that is going to come in. That you need not continue living in this mourning or the brokenness because you are going to be made whole and who will accomplish that? I will accomplish that. I will accomplish that through death on the cross eventually. And therefore, it is God who who is leading us through this experience of mourning. He is there with us, beside us and a promise offering leading us to that state of you know being blessed and being comforted when we are fully on him. So today if you are not feeling comforted or if you don't if you're not feeling that sense of peace or blessedness, you know, maybe we truly have not mourned. And that's a question for us to really evaluate. Have we truly mourned, have we truly repented? Are we truly drawing near to him with that godly sorrow? And therefore the real cause of this comfort here, which Jesus talks about that you'll be comforted, what is the crux of that comfort, it is the forgiveness which he gives for the sins. So that was the second attribute, and with that we then come to the third attribute. So again it's a progression, right? So once you realize your spiritual bankruptcy, you mourn over your situation when you're comforted, it produces something. It you know it it brings in a different attribute and that attribute is humility of meekness. And, and he says in verse five that blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. No, again, you know, for a people who were seeking a mighty warrior to come, a mighty conqueror, a mighty savior to come and deliver them, this came as a shock, right? They would have expected God or Jesus talk about some mighty things that you know, hey, blessed are those who are, you know, who are brave, who are uh, who are persevering, that you know, you those who are yearning for freedom. You guys are blessed because you will get freedom. But no, what Jesus says is, blessed are the meek, and He Himself came as a meek saviour not a conquering hero and Jesus therefore so all these beatitudes one thing that we see is you know it's not Jesus just saying these things but he is showing that in himself right he is demonstrating those things in himself and therefore he is able to tell that you know if you want to be in a kingdom where you reflect my characteristic you need to start inculcating this in you and but of course you cannot do it on your own you will need my help to do that so a person who's spiritually bankrupt who realizes a situation who is mourning that person can never be proud right i mean if you realize that you had nothing in you that you have no worth in you how can you ever be proud so therefore it's a it's a natural progression moment you realize that you had nothing that you could bring to god you mourned over it in a in a in us in us in a in a very distant manner and when you receive that comfort of forgiveness the only possible reaction or that only possible change is to be meek you can never be that you know that that uh, Proud person, that sense of accomplishment can never come, knowing that you had nothing to begin with. Right? So therefore, a person who is meek, he sees himself as you know a sinner, and he acknowledges the work of God in his life, and he understands who he is in God, and that's the experience, that's the change that comes about. You know, that person will commit his way to the Lord. You know, it's, therefore, it becomes easy for the meek person to commit his way unto the Lord. And therefore, seek him truly, Therefore, experience that true sense of blessedness. So that's what Jesus said. That you know, this is what you need to be. And again, he was a veiled message to what people were seeing. And when you look at the the significant majority of people who were governing, right? Them, it was the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were opposite of that, being meek, right? We see Jesus can we saw so last week, when Joby was speaking about Nicodemus, that you know that that Nicodemus came with a certain question, certain assumptions in his heart, but Jesus understood his real need and he tells him that, you know, you are a Pharisee, you all your life believed that uh, following the law will set you free, but that is not the case, you need to be born again, right, and that would have taken uh, Nicodemus completely aback, right, and we see unfortunately only one Pharisee, at least whom we read about and know about ever coming to God, approximately there were 6,000 Pharisees in that land in those times, but only one turns to God, you know, from what we have in scripture, Right, so how difficult it would for a proud person to turn to God. right? And that's the that's a real uh, problem, right? When we go with the gospel or why people are hesitant to receive to the turn to God, it's because they know they need to break down that pride and that is so difficult for humans to let go. So Jesus' message was very clear that the moment you realize who you are, the moment you realize that you've been forgiven, it ought to make you meek. And what is the outcome of that? It says that they will inherit the earth. So completely opposite of what... Someone who's weak, someone who is seemingly meek on the outside, can never be given, right? We uh, the cultural view is that those who reign, those who inherit, those who inherit certain things, they ought to be, you know, mighty. They ought to be, you know, strong. They ought to be, you know, uh, haughty and proud. But here, what what Jesus says is, those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. They will receive that inherited portion, you know, in the in the kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, therefore, you know, uh, it, it says that. To get that inheritance in that kingdom of God, you know, you you have to do two things. One, you realize that you're poor in spirit. You mourn about it. You get that forgiveness, and then you be meek. Right? And again, meekness is commandment. It's not a prescribed instruction. It's an explicit commandment that you find, right? And uh, again, we we saw we see glimpses of it in the Old Testament, right? In Psalms 149, it says that meekness, you know. For one person to get salvation, even meekness is an expectation. Psalms 149, verse 4, it says that you know, God pours out his salvation on the afflicted. In and that's what you read. And then in when you come to James 1 21, it's a prerequisite for us to receive God's word, right? In humility, in meekness. You know, open that the word speak to you is what you find in James 1 and verse 21. And again, a meek spirit is something that is precious in the sight of the Lord. We find that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. So, for us to understand what God is speaking to us, to receive His word, you know, to, to experience the joy of salvation, to be precious in God's sight, you know, we need to have that meekness. And when we have that meekness, when we are precious in sight of God, when we receive Him, when we receive His word, that's what makes us truly blessed. So, that, therefore, that was the third attribute, the third you know, thing which gets generated in us, when we are spiritually bankrupt, when we realize who we are, when we mourn, it makes us meek. And so when we are meek, when we have truly changed, what what is the following consequence of that? That's the fourth beatitude or the fourth attribute, which is pleading for his righteousness. In verse six, it says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." Right. So that's 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 the again a natural progression, right? So moment you have you are poor in spirit, you realize who you are, the moment you have mourned about it and comforted, and then moment you have you know, turned to meekness, it has made you humble, that produces in your sense of thirst and hunger to seek out God's righteousness. Because you know you realized what you have gone through. You realize just the impact of what God is doing in your life, and therefore you need or you have that urge to know more. Right? And uh you know, the the phrase that is used here for hunger and thirst, it's it depicts some strong desire, a deeply felt need, an intense pursuit of something, right? a relentless pursuit of something and, you know, and it's done with the right cause, it's not just any pursuit any any kind of desire but for the right cause and that's what is being indicated here when Jesus said that that blessed are those who hunger and thirst so in an earthly kingdom, what is the basic necessity right, there is hunger and thirst but what is that for, that is for food but in the kingdom of God, that necessity changes right, that hunger and thirst is not for physical food and water, but it's for righteousness, God's righteousness. Knowing that we were sinners, knowing, realizing that we are filled with sin and that sin has been removed by God's grace, we now therefore have a yearning to understand God's righteousness and bring that into our life and therefore we'll make all efforts to get that done and that's what is kind of talking about. So that's the the expectation laid out, right, Uh, of a a citizen in the kingdom of God, that once you are meek, once you're humble, once you're poor in spirit, it needs to generate that intense thirst, that hunger for God's word, for God's righteousness, for God's holiness to come into your life, right? And uh, again, when Jesus says this, He adds in the component that it's not something that you are going to get on your own. Right? This righteousness is not something that you can achieve, but it has to be something that is given to you, and that's that's what He goes on to further say. Uh, so it's a, and again it's a continuous process. It does not say that you know, blessed are those who have thirsted and hungered and you know, filled. It's a continuous process. Blessed are those who continue to hunger and thirst. It's a continuous process which will be there till the time we see Jesus face to face when we are in the presence and the kingdom of God. Because that's a process where we learn, you know, because it's you know when we, it's not something that we are doing against a ritual, right? And that was a change for the people of Israel because they were used to do certain things recurring way without knowing what they were doing, without being truly uh, understanding it, without being able to really change by it, without their heart being there. But what he just says is, Right. When you learn more about yourself, right, moment you realized who you were, what you were, and moment you realized what God has done for you, and the more you understand about Jesus, it will generate that hunger and thirst because you want to know more about this God who has saved you. Right? We want to know more about Jesus who has set us free. We want to know more about the work he does in our life. And we cannot be satiated with anything, with with no matter how how much we read, how much, you know, how much time we spend in his presence. We want to know more and more. Right, that was the desire of Moses, and again, all these beatitudes we see uh, evidences of that in the in the Old Testament, the lives of people. Right, we have the poor in spirit. We see, you know, uh, God talking to Jacob on that aspect. Right, we talk, here we have for this writers. We see Moses when he says, "Lord, I want to see you more. I want to see your face. I'm not content with just you know getting these instructions. I want to know you more." You know, we see that desire coming in Moses and he was given just a glimpse of it but we have been given the full manifestation when Jesus came and he demonstrated himself to us. Right? And what is the outcome of it? It says that they will be satisfied. So this satisfaction again is not something which is coming from an earthly fulfillment but something that God does. And when we find evidences in the Old Testament when you go back in Psalm one hundred and seventy nine it says that God satisfies a longing soul, a hungry soul he feels Right? So, these are again not really new, completely new things that Jesus is bringing in. These are already there in the Old Testament, just that, you know, it, people never saw that in its fullness, but now it is being revealed. And then, Jesus said, says in John 6.35 that he, I am the bread of life, that whoever comes to me shall never be hungry or be thirsty. Right? And in Psalms also we see David says that my cup runs over, that's the experience. You know, that is what it means to be fully satisfied. It's not just giving what is enough, but uh, you know, bountifully giving and where to an extent there the cup starts running over. So as we pursue righteousness, as we pursue God's righteousness, we strive we to be like him and we, we try to be conform more to his image. And when we do that, that is when we are truly filled and therefore led to being blessed. Right? If if you are not feeling that hunger and thirst today, if you are not hungering and thirsting, then there is something which is totally missing or we are content with just probably sipping, you know, just like, for example, if you give a glass of water, you know, if you're not really thirsty, what will you do? You'll probably just take a sip and keep it aside, right? You don't want it, but if you are fully thirsty, you'll gobble it down, you'll probably ask for more, right? So, that's the analogy being drawn here, right? So, if, if you're not really thirsting and hungering after God's word, after His righteousness, you know there is something not uh, right. You know you need to we need to all evaluate ourselves. So therefore, you know he will he will fulfill us. He will satisfy us, and he will give us the grace to continue to explore, uh, continue to pursue that tightness, knowing that we will we cannot get it on our own. So these are the four attributes that we see. Uh, you know when when it comes to relating to God, because these are things which God uh, generates in us. He's the one when we realize that we are poor in spirit. That uh, you know that. We, he gives us the promise of the kingdom of God. He gives us entry into the kingdom of God. Uh, then we mourn. We we go to Him, right? When when we are when we are mourning, we long for His forgiveness, and we again go to Him. We draw near to Him. When we are meek again, you know, we want to be into we we want to be in His presence. So and then finally, when we are hungering and thirsting again, we pursue Him. So these are the attributes, which the Beatitudes talking about in relation to God and the attributes of the citizens. So now once we have attained this, or once these attributes come into a person, what it leads to organically next is attitudes. So now we start relating to others around us. Now that we have established a relationship with God, we know what He, the changes that is is bringing in us, the next stage is how does that reflect to people around us. And the next four Beatitudes are these attitudes which uh, we will start to see how it generates that result in us. And the first attitude is, you know, being merciful. Uh, so we, you we know, we, when we see in verse seven, it says, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." Now, sometimes we sort of uh, turn this around to mean as a, as a simple virtue, right? Okay, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're merciful, if you show mercy as a charity, you know, that automatically gets us blessing. But that's not the meaning with which it's you know, intended. We are not trying to force God's hand by being merciful. It's it's much more than that. It's a mercy which does not come out of our human emotion and that's the difference. That's what Jesus is trying to say. You know, those who show mercy are not trying to show mercy by your own effort, but you are demonstrating this mercy because of the relationship with God that has been established. You know, through the earlier four beatitudes, that you have realized who you are, that you've you know that you have received that forgiveness, that you are truly meek and you're truly hungry and thirsting, and therefore that is what produces mercy. It's not you trying to show a good deed. You know, you are not trying to show compassion to someone else. Right? You are you you are just showing what you have experienced, and you want to extend it towards others. So that's the difference when he says that you need to show mercy. And it again, you know, Jesus himself ex, ex, you know, uh, exemplifies it, personifies it, because He's the one who, you know, gave us mercy and it starts with him. And it's an attribute of God, right? Maybe when you look at the attributes of God being merciful, we have a lot of verses, we not get into that, but we, we know that the attribute of God is showing mercy. And therefore, when he says that you need to be merciful, he is implying that it's just his attribute that he is imputing onto us, that he is putting to us when we enter the kingdom of God. And therefore, how does that mercy gets shown, what what exactly is the manifestation of that mercy, is essentially when we, uh, you know, have a true genuine compassion towards others, right. It's not something that we are forced to do, it's not something that, uh, okay, I need to maybe, you know, again, tick a box. Have I done my share of charity? Have I done my share of showing kindness? It's something that you will be automatically forced to do, right. You will be led to do it. You will feel that pain of the other person. You will feel the pain of others in need. And when you realize that once you were like that, right, once you and you were, once without mercy and it was shown to us, we will feel that need us to show mercy, right? And that's what Jesus says here and what's the outcome of it? He says that they shall in turn obtain mercy. It's not to indicate that, you know, something about salvation here. It's not that, oh, if you show mercy, you know, God will merciful and give you salvation. It's not that meaning with which is being talked about here. You know, it's not that, oh, because you show mercy, god will be happy and you know you will find favor in his eyes it's not that it's just that you know the mercy that gets produced in you as an outcome of a relationship with god when you do it with the right intent god in turn shows you mercy god in turn uh, you know ex- makes you experience that fullness of that mercy uh, when you walk with him and he will pour out that mercy on you james 2 and verse 13 uh, it talks about uh, you know we'll just quickly read that james 2 and verse 13 just to get first to get a context it says here that for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, right? So, it's, it's, so therefore God's promise that if we show mercy, uh, He will acknowledge and He will extend that to us as well. So it's something which comes from to us back from God and from man as well. And if you're not able to show mercy today, if our hearts are not moved when it comes to someone's need, it probably indicates that we have not experienced it ourselves or we So that's the first attitude that it generates is to be merciful and the second attitude you know so once we start uh, when you have gone through all the earlier Beatitudes once we have produced those attributes we start being merciful the second attitude that is being talked about is you know pursuing purity right in verse 8 he says the blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God now this is the most important uh, Beatitude probably of all, while mean, I, I, all of them have their own importance, but when it comes to us and our life you, uh, you know, when Jesus was struggling in a nation, and get right? we see having that conversation, because God's word was silent. Words that came out of John's mouth or Jesus' mouth were not comforting words. They were not words to give, okay, you know, it's okay, people, you know, just hang on for a few more days. Messiah is coming, just be there. They were harsh words. Right? They were very powerful words. John Nadasism said, "You brute of vipers, who told you to escape from you know the wrath?" But we still have people flocking to them. Why? Because there was this inner sense of decay that was creeping in. Right? All these years of following uh, one ritual after the other, one ceremony after the other, not producing any change, not giving any growth, and so there was a spiritual rot. But what they did not realize that. Where was this rot stemming from? And that is what Jesus want to address by saying that you have not understood. You are your hearts today are not pure. You are not pursuing their, you know, pursuing a purity. And even to Jesus, we have a lot of people coming and asking this question, right? We had the rich ruler in Luke 10 and also chapter 18 verse 18 saying, "Lord, what must I do to do eternal life?" And the answer was what? To be to have a pure heart. In other words, you know, to you know, to have that dedication, that commitment. To, to God and that's what uh, Jesus talked talked about. So, when you look at this, we break down this phrase, pure in heart, the pure word, pure comes from the Greek word uh, katharos, right? It's from where catharsis is arrived from. It's a process of being, you know, total cleansing, total, uh, you know, total transformation from inside. And the word heart, it comes from the Greek word cardia, which is where, you know, we have the cardiac, arrest or the cardiac term associated with the heart it is the core of our being and that's what the meaning indicates so when Jesus say that you have to be pure in heart it means that you have to undergo a change from the core of your being from the core of a very being it's not a uh, a, a very um, you know external change it's a change from within and unless you pursue that you will never be blessed and how does that pure in heart uh manifest itself it manifests itself in in an undivided loyalty in a total fully uh, fully committed life you know, where Jesus and where God occupies the heart occupies everything that we pursue we cannot therefore be in a situation where we pursue different things that we pursue the world and we pursue God that will never happen when we have a pure heart because our whole commitment and uh, dedication will be towards Him and therefore we will be true disciples in that in that sense of the word Right? we will not be able to give time to the world and some to God. If we are today finding it difficult to um, juggle between you know demands of the world and to maintain a life committed to God, this is a call to us to examine whether have our hearts are pure, whether have we truly pursued purity. And what is the reward and outcome for them? That they shall see God. And what does this seeing God mean? It's not something that a distant promise that one day you will see God in your in in heaven. That is definitely be you know there, but. This aspect of seeing God has much more connotations. It's seeing God for who He is, is seeing God revealed in the scriptures. And mind you, you know, when the Jews were hearing this, it would have just, you know, the world under you know the the ground under their feet would have slipped away. Because for a Jew it was a terrible thing to imagine seeing God. Right? We have back in the Old Testament, people when they got a glimpse, what was the reaction? No, we, we heard about Elijah a couple of weeks back when Sam John was there. He, you know, we saw Elijah's reaction Lord, Lord I've seen your face. I, I cannot live anymore. Right? People hid their face in the Old Testament times whenever God made his presence. Right? But here's a promise being given to them that if you have a pure heart, you shall see this very God whom you have dreaded your entire life to even imagine witnessing or seeing. Right? Uh, and then imagine much less a sinner. How can he even see God? But Jesus said that once you have changed your heart, once your you know your spiritual bankruptcy has been removed, once you are meek, once you are hung, you know, pursuing hunger and th- uh, right thirst for righteousness, and once you are showing mercy, once you have a pure, cleaned heart, completely transformed core, you will get to see God. And when where do we see God? We see God in everything, right? We see God in our circumstances, we see God in in our past, in the present, and in future. We see God in in things around us, in creation, and when providence comes, right when things happen in life, happen that we feel is hey, how did this happen? How could this? How could this be? How has this worked out to our best? We see that God is the one working behind the scenes, and therefore, whenever any trouble comes, whenever any adverse circumstance comes, we will never be moved. It will not make us waver because we know that we are seeing God in even in that circumstance. We are seeing God working His providence for us, and that's the experience of. Uh, of a person who has pure a pure heart. And this is something which will not be given to part-time disciples. Right? We cannot be part-time disciples and then expect to see God. No, that will never happen unless we are totally pure in heart, totally committed, totally devoted. This experience of being and walking with God and seeing Him will never be given. And therefore, this is the this is the exclusive benefit given to those who are truly His disciples to be able to see God, right? And that's something that we cannot aspire for. So that's the second attitude. The third attitude that we need to or it generates in us the blessings or being truly blessed generates us is pursuing peace. you know in verse nine it says that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Again, this concept of peace is something which has been running through the entire Old Testament, and interestingly, we see the Bible beginning with peace and it ending also with peace. you know back in the Garden of Eden, when God created you know it was, he rested and he was at peace. But then you then see when sin came, when the fall happened, that peace gets disrupted, right? We see peace between God and man disrupted. We see peace between man and man getting disrupted. But then when Jesus came to, to this earth, we see that process getting reversed, right? What was the first message which rang out in that land when Jesus was born? Peace and good tidings to earth, right? That was um, what the angels declared, right? When Jesus came, he started the process of reconciling that peace between God and man. And then, when he died on that cross, he gave that opportunity for peace between men to be restored as well, right? And uh, and when we so, therefore, you know, what has been expected to us, or we have been charged with, is to be agents of peace, to to be those to be those peacemakers, right? Uh, who 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 bring peace to troubled hearts you know it's not like the un peacekeeping force that has been set up right i think the only thing they've been able to achieve is everything ap- apart from peace right? that's not what the expectation is right when we bring peace it's not our own concept of peace you know, it's, it's the peace which comes from God. It's, its Peace is not here the absence of strife or absence of conflict. Peace is a sense of contentment even when things are against us. And that kind of peace again only comes from God, only comes to a person who has his relationship uh, and his place right with God. And that is what is encouraged that, you know, therefore we have been given that charge to bring that peace. And again, how do we bring that peace to, any, to someone when we confront what their uh, real problem is? Again, when you look at the world's point of view of peace, what is that peace? You know, it's, for them, it's an evasion. Right? We look at all the peace treaties, peace accords. It's not change. It's about okay, I will, you know, I'll try to evade this situation that I get into. But the biblical concept of peace, it's about addressing, confronting man's sin, and therefore, it may not be always conducive. You know, Jesus Himself said, "I've come not to create peace, but I've come with a sword, because I've come to confront your real problem, which is sin." And when that is done, even though you are, missed, you are in the midst of trials, you are in the midst of difficulties, you will still experience a contentment, and that is the promise of real peace, which we need to take to people outside as well, which they need to know as well. And therefore, that is what has been asked of us. We have been invited to uh, that, you know, uh, to be peacemakers. Right? We James three and verse eighteen, it tells us what this uh, what our role is: that we need to be ones who sow seeds of righteousness, and therefore are amb- ambassadors of peace. That's what the task has been given to us. So therefore, blessed are the peacemakers. And what is our reward? That they shall be called sons of God. We will reflect the characteristics of that King of that kingdom. We we will reflect because we are the sons of God. Therefore, we need to reflect the qualities of a Father, right? And again, the attribute of God is what peace. Therefore, being His offspring, we need to uh, you know when we start demonstrating that attributes of peace, we will be given that privilege of being called. Sons of God and experience of sons of God. And therefore we have to be characterized by our efforts at peace. And we see again Jesus setting the example. Who was the first peacemaker? You know, Jesus, right? We when we read Ephesians 2 and verse 14, it says, For well, he is our peace. Right? Again, we are not to do anything. We need to have create our notions of peace. We have Jesus who's already done it. We just go with that message. We just go with that uh, you know, that uh, that effort, we just go with that good news of peace and make others come to it. So that's that's the third attitude. And fourth and the final one you know, is enduring hostility and persecution. Right. In verse nine, verse 10 to 12 it talks about this persecution. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely they say all kind of evil. Rejoice and be glad. That's the Expectation. So, who are these? Those who are persecuted. This those are those who have gone through all the previous beatitudes. They are the ones who have been poor in spirit. They are the ones who, um, you know, have experienced that forgiveness have been have mourned and have been comforted. They are the ones who are turned meek. They are the ones who are hungering after righteousness and 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 uh, thir- uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They are the ones who are being merciful. They are the ones who are pu- pure in heart. They are the ones who are sowing seeds of peace. When they do all that. They will undergo righteousness. So it's not going to be an easy task. Again, so completely counter-cultural, right? I mean, Jesus is saying, even after you do all these things, you know, even after you pursue all these things, it may not necessarily bring you good, joyful times. In fact, what is granted or is, or confirmed is you will face persecution. And as believers today, that's something which has been granted to us also, right? When we see Philippians 129, it says that we've been granted, it has been granted to us to suffer persecution. First Thessalonians 3 and 3 verses that we've been appointed for persecution so that's something which is going to be part of our lives as believers because what is happening is that we are contending against this world against this world's view which is controlled by satan so wherever there is going to be that struggle therefore there is always going to be a pushback and that manifests itself through persecution but what are we asked to do in the midst to rejoice and be glad you know we you know this persecution may come to us in different ways there will be personal insults we may go through people who who in, who humiliate us you know who make it difficult for us to continue in our walk with the lord it may it may result itself through physical harm Right? we, we were praying about the charlie john right what is causing that right what is causing those uh, uh changes it's not something unexpected right it's something that is given the moment we start contending with this world and with the power of darkness persecutions will come but we are not to waver we've been given to you no, know, sustain and endure because you know it says that great is your reward in heaven. And what is the final outcome? It says that you know theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is a reward that we are getting for losing everything on this earth. You know when we when we truly walk uh, with the Lord, when we truly live a life that is pleasing to Him, and we are approved of Him, that's what being blessed means. Right? When blessing means we are approved of God, right? And we are approved of God when we live lives that are conducive to that of believer. Persecutions will come. Hardships will come. But but the outcome or the, or the great result that awaits is that, if even if we lose everything on this earth, even if we don't have anything on this earth, even though we live anonymous lives, even though we have nothing to show for what we have on this earth, there is a greater reward in heaven. Question is, does that matter to us? Right? Is that reward in heaven mean anything to us? Are we content with things on this earth? When we differentiate in that question, we truly will be able to withstand this. And therefore, it's a recognition of it's ultimate recognition of someone who is an authentic true believer that if you suffer if you endure persecution that you are therefore demonstrating the what it means to be a true believer so what is the essence of all these beatitudes what do we what do we kind of take away for us right As a question right as a church who do we want to be you know, we see all these beatitudes complementing each other right because those who are poor in spirit they acknowledge the need for mercy and therefore show mercy those who mourn for their sins you know when they when they get comfort when they receive that forgiveness they want to try and become more pure they want to pursue purity the meek in heart they want to strive for peace they want to pursue peace because they genuinely cared about others genuinely cared about well-being of the others and those who hunger and those who are righteousness they are going to do that irrespective of whatever comes irrespective of whatever hardships, persecution comes so all these Beatitudes are not isolated events but they are so well-knit and so complementary of each other and therefore as believers the question to us is how willing are we or how keen are we to incorporate them, and especially as a church right, what do we want to be known as a church right, and especially as we, as a church when we are praying for church planting we, are, we, are, we have the desire to plant more churches, are we truly ready therefore to be the salt and light are we ready for whatever it takes, are we a church that is, you know uh, where we all realize that we are poor in spirit, that we have nothing to bring to him, are we all people who mourn for our sins, for our shortcomings, are we May are we a church that hunger and thirst for righteousness? If we are not, then you know our journey can be inhibited. May God help us to be a church that, pers- you know, that that pursues his beatitudes, that truly seeks to be blessed, not in a material sense, not to have things around us, not to be content with our skills, our talents, our resources, but to seek that transformation from within. Right? From the beginning of the year, we have been talking about this theme of transformation. I time as the time but Roberts spoke to us in the camp and through all the messages that we've heard, the need of the hour is for change from within. Are we as a church ready to pursue that? And are we as a church ready to face persecution? Setting up, you know, if you're going to plant churches or if you're going to involve involved in it, it is going to bring with its challenges. Are we going to waver or are we going to stay firm, right? And the 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 most beautiful part is that we don't have to do it alone, Right? we have not been asked to pursue all this on our own. God is there, He has empowered us through His Spirit and He will help us on this journey as we seek. Because we are not seeking this righteousness on our own, we are not trying to be merciful or peacemakers on our own. He has already done that work, He has already set the way. All that is asked for us is to just humbly yield ourselves and let Him change and transform us. May God help us to understand this beatitudes better and even as we discuss in the cell groups to truly realize right what it means to you know for, for example some that when was the last time we were truly hungered and thirsted for thirst for righteousness are we still feeling that in day-to-day life are we having that desire to pursue purity are we willing to talk about God in our workplaces even if it means people isolate us or if we face you know these are questions which I ask myself and You know, I I was just, I was telling Bencha the other day, right, you know, I feel so inadequate to talk about this even. Right? Nothing of this is there in my life and what right do I have to come and talk about this today? But I hope that, you know, as it has encouraged me, may this encourage all of us to pursue these things, pursue to, to be truly blessed and may God help each one of us to do that. May His name be glorified.